Listeners, if you enjoy the series Cults, you can find our entire catalog of episodes, plus new ones each week, free and only on Spotify. That's hundreds of episodes you won't hear anywhere else, all in one place. All you have to do is download the Spotify app for free and follow Cults to ensure you don't miss out on any of history's most radical groups. Thanks for listening to Cults, and we'll see you on Spotify. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Rajneesh Param, as the cult became known in the United States, was led by a man who called himself Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and his top aide, Ma Anand Sheila. Rajneesh based his belief system around the affirmation of capitalism and sexual pleasure, which he believed was the true path to enlightenment. Rajneesh began amassing followers, or sannyasins, as a professor and traveling lecturer in India during the 1970s. After a financial scandal, growing health problems, and violent conflicts on the religious retreat known as his ashram, he moved his followers to the United States. Under the leadership of Rajneesh's second-in-command, Ma Anand Sheila, Rajneesh's followers built a commune on 64,000 acres of rural ranch land right outside of Antelope, Oregon, from 1981 to 1985. By their own account, Rajneesh's followers numbered up to 350,000 at their peak, but the Oregonian reported numbers much closer to 60,000. The commune in Oregon was forced to disband in 1985 after they instigated a biochemical attack against their neighbors in the town of Antelope. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today we're going to take a deep dive into Rajneesh Param, 
a spiritual following in Wasco County, Oregon, that tried to seize political power through the local government and waged the first biochemical attack on American soil. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. In part one, we'll focus on the events that shaped Rajneesh's life and his journey to becoming an enlightened spiritual guru and cult leader, as well as follow Sheila's eventual transition into power. When Sheila assumed the role of the leader by proxy, she convinced cult members devoted to Rajneesh to follow her new agenda. This set into motion a series of events that eventually led to the downfall of the movement. In part two, we'll take a closer look at who these followers, who these sannyasins were, and what life was like on the community of Rajneesh Param in the early 1980s. We will uncover how Sheila ruled the commune as a ruthless authoritarian. We'll examine how this expanding commune made enemies of their neighboring Oregonians and discover why growing tensions led them to poison the surrounding towns in the first ever bioterrorism attack on U.S. soil. Quote, I saw Bhagwan Rajneesh extremely charismatic, brilliant, inspiring, powerful, and loving. And I also saw him being ridiculously manipulative, vengeful, self-serving, and hurtful. He disregarded all laws, moralities, ethics, and legalities of every community, society, and nation because he wanted to create a society of his own vision with his own laws and rules." End quote. These are the adoring and condemning words of Ma Ananda Sheila, born Sheila Ambalal Patel, the right-hand woman and spokesperson for infamous spiritualist cult leader Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. She described the man whom she'd followed across the United States and helped to build an oasis commune as being, quote, many things to many people. To conservative Christians, he was the devil. To his followers who came to study spirituality, he was an enlightened man. To others, he was a god. And for me, he was a beautiful man, end quote. But who was this man really? How did he build the persona that inspired his followers and launched him to the forefront of one of Oregon's most compelling political scandals to date? Before we can begin to understand the identity that Rajneesh created for himself, we must first explore his origins as a young boy growing up in India. Mohan Chandra Rajneesh was born on December 11, 1931, in Kuchwada, India, to Jain parents. Jainism is an ancient Indian religion, which believes that the body and soul are completely separate. Jains seek to make sense of existence and understand the expanse of the universe, refuting the idea of a single creator or ruler of the universe. Jainism believes in pluralism and multiple viewpoints. According to this philosophy, all of reality is perceived through our own perspectives and understanding, and therefore no single thing is any more true than another. 
Thus, Jains do not believe in the declaration of absolute truth and teaches that living a life of harmlessness and renunciation will bring bliss and liberate the soul. A worrisome prediction was made at the time of Rajneesh's birth in 1931. After Rajneesh was born, Rajneesh's grandfather commissioned one of the top astrologers of the day to make his grandson's birth chart. A birth chart is a map of planetary alignments at the exact date and time of your birth, which are meant to hold the key to your personality and your future. This particular astrologer did not believe Rajneesh would survive the first seven years of his life. He refused to make Rajneesh's chart until the boy turned seven. This threw a pall over Rajneesh's childhood. The threat of death remained all around him in his early years. At a young age, he suffered from asthma and a bout of smallpox, which nearly took his life. Rajneesh's parents were burdened with the responsibility of managing the business that they had just inherited after Rajneesh's paternal grandmother passed away and raising their 11 children. Rajneesh, the oldest and most independent, was sent to his maternal grandparents in Kuchwada. Rajneesh credited his years with his maternal grandmother as an incredibly influential time in his life. She raised him with absolute freedom and imposed no restrictions. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Rajneesh was an independent, fearless, and mischievous child. He insisted on experiencing the truth rather than passively accepting others' beliefs. He may have developed these views after experiencing the immense freedom his grandmother allowed him. His upbringing in the Jain religion, which encouraged questioning reality and perceived truths, likely contributed to his flexible, rebellious nature. But alongside this free-spirited independence, there lived a darkness inside Rajneesh as well. He soon came to obsess over death and the occult. When Rajneesh turned seven in 1938, the astrologer did finally make his chart, but the reading was bleak. The astrologer was nearly certain that Rajneesh would not live past the age of 21, and this cast a dark shadow over the rest of Rajneesh's childhood. This prediction, which came when Rajneesh was only seven, coincided with the death of his grandfather that same year. Rajneesh was very close with his grandfather, and this death had a great impact on the young boy. He referred to his grandfather's death as the death of all attachments. He began to distance himself from those around him, perhaps as a way of protecting himself from the pain of losing loved ones. That same year, shortly after his grandfather's death, Rajneesh and his grandmother moved to Garavada to be closer to his parents. Rajneesh began attending school for the first time as a seven-year-old. The structure of a typical classroom was a large departure from what Rajneesh was used to back in Kuchwada. In school, Rajneesh showed great intelligence, but he also showed his stubborn, rebellious streak. According to his own account, as well as the accounts of those who knew him, he was a daredevil and a prankster. He liked to test his own physical limitations and challenge authority and social norms. Through all of this time, the superstition of seven-year cycles hung over Rajneesh's head, and he constantly worried over his foretold death. When he turned 14 in 1945, the anxiety over his alleged impending death consumed him. 
But Rajesh chose to face death head on. He's quoted as saying, If death is going to occur as the astrologer has said, then it's better to be prepared. Why should I not go and meet it halfway? If I'm going to die, then it is better to die consciously. End quote. Rajneesh went to the outskirts of his village and stayed in an old temple among ruins. He arranged to receive food and water once daily, but was otherwise left completely undisturbed for seven days. For an entire week, he laid in the temple and waited for death to take him. Bruce Grayson, Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia, has dedicated a great deal of his studies to defining and understanding near-death experiences, or NDEs. In one of his publications on the topic, he concludes that NDEs can be classified as experiences that involve out-of-body sensations, bright lights, feelings of deep calm, and an examination of life. These feelings are associated with close brushes with death that not only include life-threatening medical conditions, but also moments where people truly believe that death is imminent, even when there is no real threat. Considering that 14-year-old Rajneesh was truly prepared and ready to die, this moment in his life could be considered a near-death experience, according to this definition. Of the experience, he said, quote, For seven days I waited. Death never came. Strange, weird feelings happened. If you're feeling like you're going to die, you become calm and silent. Nothing creates any worry then, because all worries are concerned with life. End quote. Near-death experiences are closely associated with heightened brain activity, according to recent research studies. The University of Michigan in Ann Arbor conducted a study to record brain activity in rats as they entered cardiac arrest, and they found increased electrical activity in the brain. Researchers believe this heightened brain activity also takes place in humans when they undergo near-death experiences. Some people describe their NDEs as peaceful and calming, while others describe visions of divine beings from an afterlife. This phenomena could account for those strange, weird feelings that Rajneesh described after surviving the seven days in the temple. But Rajneesh, of course, did not die in that temple. Near-death experiences tend to launch a person in an entirely new direction in life, according to Grayson's research. This is especially common for people whose lives thus far were marked by struggle, doubt, or fear. And for Rajneesh, his life was accented by a constant fear of death. Even though he himself did not die, as predicted by the astrologer, Rajneesh experienced another death in his teen years. His cousin and girlfriend, Shashi, passed away. This was another loss that deeply affected Rajneesh. Many turned to religion to deal with grief. But as Rajneesh grew older, he continuously challenged conventional religious teachings and mocked religion. Nevertheless, he still studied Jain texts and Christian and Buddhist scriptures. It's also not uncommon for those who are uncomfortable with death and their own mortality to turn to religion and spirituality in order to cope with this anxiety. Even though he doubted traditional religious teachings, he continued digging for answers. He didn't realize how far his search would take him. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, let's continue our story. At the age of 19, around 1951, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh entered Hidkarani College in Jabalpur, 
about 90 miles from his parents' home. On March 21, 1953, at the age of 21, Rajneesh marked his survival of yet another seven-year cycle by declaring that he was enlightened. Enlightenment means different things in different religions, but it generally marks a peaceful state of being where you have transcended the ordinary worries and concerns of day-to-day human life. Always in search of a path to a higher consciousness, he was enthralled during his college years by the teachings of George Gurdjieff, a Greek and Armenian spiritual philosopher. Gurdjieff's teachings claimed that most humans experience a disconnect between their emotions and bodies and therefore live their lives in a hypnotic state. However, this waking sleep, as he called it, could be overcome and transcended in order to achieve one's maximum potential of higher consciousness and inner growth. Rajneesh regularly challenged his teachers in class, constantly questioning their authority to a disruptive degree, and he was finally asked to leave the school. He then continued his studies at D.N. Jain College, also in Jabalpur and earned a B.A. in philosophy from the school at the age of 24 in 1955. At D.N. Jain College, he remained argumentative with his teachers, so much so that they exempted him from coming to class so as not to disrupt the education of his peers. He only needed to attend tests. All of the arguing did get him somewhere, though, as he participated in the school's debate club and became the national debate champion. Immediately after he graduated from D.N. Jain College, he entered the University of Sagar, where he earned an M.A. in philosophy in 1957. From there, he joined Raipur Sanskrit College as a lecturer. According to Anil Kumar Mysore Nagaraj, whose psychiatry work covers some of Rajneesh's philosophies, the chancellor at Raipur Sanskrit worried that Rajneesh would be a negative influence on the students and a danger to their morality and character. So Rajneesh was quickly asked to leave. Rajneesh became a lecturer at Jabalpur University. And in 1960, at the age of 29, he was made a professor of philosophy. He started speaking at the annual Sarva Dharma Samalan, or the Meeting of All Faiths, held at Jabalpur every year. Organized by the Jain community, this interfaith assembly offered a platform for followers from many different religious groups to discuss important issues in their communities and advocate for religious tolerance. This meeting still takes place to this day. In addition to teaching, he took his lectures on the road with a tour throughout India, calling himself Acharya, or spiritual leader. Among Jains, Acharyas are venerated leaders who guide entire orders of monks. Rajneesh covered many religions and topics in his spiritual teachings. The transcripts of his lectures produced over 400 books of his musings on topics as wide-ranging as Christianity and Hasidism, to yoga and Zen, and even Sigmund Freud and Henry Ford. He borrowed from many of these different philosophies, marrying them together to create his own belief system. The main pillars of his teachings were nearly fully formed by the time he was 31 in 1962, when he started opening camps where he led three- to ten-day meditations. He became known for his teachings on dynamic meditation. This was a practice he developed himself, which paired physical movement with extremely fast, intense breathing, meant to break through emotional blocks in the body, followed by a cathartic rest period. 
It's possible that Rajneesh was influenced by and took inspiration from George Gurdjieff's teachings on sacred dance movements and meditation. In 1966, he gave up academic teaching at universities and dedicated his life to his spiritual teachings. In his early lectures, he criticized socialism, Mahatma Gandhi, and traditional religions, and he gave strong endorsements of a capitalist society. Of Gandhi, he once said, quote, I had to decide to be against a man I may have loved if he had not been against progress, against prosperity, against science, against technology. In fact, he was against almost everything for which I stand. More technology and more science, and more richness and affluence. I am not for poverty. He was. I am not for primitiveness. He was. But still, whenever I see even a small ingredient of beauty, I appreciate it." End quote. His philosophy about capitalism was later recorded and can be found in his book, Come, Come, Yet Again, Come, where he says, quote, Capitalism is not an ideology. It is not imposed on the society. It is a natural growth. It is not like communism or fascism or socialism. These ideologies have to be imposed. Capitalism is a state of freedom. That's exactly why I am in support of it. It allows you all kinds of freedoms. Communism will give you only one ideology to believe in. There is no question of choice." End quote. Here we can see how his rebellious spirit and his resistance to imposed rules and regulations start to inform his philosophies. In 1968, at the age of 37, Rajneesh's talks started to focus even more on the acceptance of sex and sexuality. These lectures were eventually published under the title, From Sex to Superconsciousness, earning him the reputation in Indian media as a sex guru. His teachings received a great deal of backlash from a scandalized community. It is worth noting that some Hindu teachings do acknowledge a relationship between sexual energy and a higher consciousness, but Rajneesh's endorsement of free, uninhibited sexual expression, or free love, left him at odds with his community. In his lectures on the sacredness of sexuality, he claimed that it was a vital part of achieving spiritual growth and higher consciousness. He believed that religion and social norms restricted freedom of sexual expression by associating it with shame and embarrassment. He insisted that the secrecy and shame surrounding sex prevented children from getting the proper education they needed to understand sex and their own desires. This viewpoint clashed with conservative Hindu leaders who were upset over the public discussion of sexual matters that they felt should be discussed privately. He believed that many religions focused too much on the reward of the afterlife, dismissing the beauty, joys, and sacredness that were right in front of them in life. To Rajneesh, love was the way to enlightenment. He believed that love could become trapped and unreachable inside of a person, and could only be released through sexual expression. Of sex and its sacredness, he said, quote, Man's whole society is sick and wretched, and if this cancerous society is to be changed, it is essential to accept that the energy of sex is divine, that the attraction for sex is essentially religious." End quote. However, his liberal ideas on sex and sexuality did not extend to the LGBT community or sex workers. 
He claimed that the war on sex caused people to develop what he believed were unhealthy coping mechanisms. Though his teachings were controversial among traditionalists in India, his talks began to reach a wide audience between 1966 and 1968, which piqued the interest of both the press and the public. He soon gained a following, particularly among Westerners who were currently experiencing new freedoms brought on by their own cultural and sexual revolutions. The sexual revolution, which set Western culture ablaze between the 1960s and 1980s, was marked by a rejection of gender roles and an increased acceptance of sexual expression. It was a movement that aligned perfectly with Rajneesh's philosophical teachings. In his book, Zorba the Buddha, Hugh B. Urban discusses the ways in which the formation of Rajneesh's movement conveniently coincided with second-wave feminism. Rajneesh believed in the superiority of women. He believed that their ability to have multiple orgasms was proof that they were in possession of a greater sexual energy. Rajneesh theorized that this greater power instilled a certain fear in men, causing them to oppress and dominate women for centuries. Rajneesh believed he could offer women a path to freedom and enlightenment that no other feminist movement could. He said, quote, my own vision is that the coming of age will be the age of woman. Man has tried for 5,000 years and failed. It is enough. Now feminine energies have to be released. The freedom of women cannot come through stupid movements like women's liberation. If we create a few women Buddhas in the world, then women will be freed from all the chains and fetters." End quote. No doubt a very powerful and attractive message to send to the world of women who had just begun to taste the changes and freedoms of the feminist and sexual liberation movements. The West was quite alluring to Rajneesh. In addition to his interest in these liberation movements, he was also a champion of capitalism. He didn't miss an opportunity to cash in on the tumultuous times. At the end of the 1960s, he upgraded his title from Acharya to another honorific derived from Hindi or Sanskrit languages, Bhagwan, meaning Lord. He established himself in Bombay, where large audiences traveled from all over the world to attend his lectures. He held court among curious travelers and dedicated devotees alike, who began their day with the rigorous process of dynamic meditation, and then gathered for his lectures in the evening. We're starting to see Rajneesh's transformation into what sociologists refer to as a charismatic leader. This is a term that political economist and sociologist Max Weber applied to many cult leaders. Weber's work in political sociology names three types of domination or authority, charismatic, traditional, and legal authority. By Weber's definitions, rational legal authority and traditional authority are more common and conventional. Rational legal authorities are legitimatized by complex rules and regulated by government laws. Traditional authority refers to power that typically passes from one generation to the next. Charismatic leaders, on the other hand, are set apart and treated as though they have superhuman powers or qualities. This definitely applied to Rajneesh, who claimed he was an enlightened being. According to Weber, quote, the person in question gains legitimacy for leadership and followers accept their charismatic authority, end quote. 
This started to play out right away during his time teaching in Bombay, where he established headquarters from 1969 to 1974. While in Bombay, Rajneesh surrounded himself with adoring followers who believed that his philosophy could save humankind. From this philosophy, Rajneesh developed the idea of a homo novus, or new man. According to his vision, he wanted to create a new world, a new future, where this new man could emerge. This new man, according to his ideals, would be beyond good and evil, and free from the restrictions and obligations of society, to become an enlightened elite. Rajneesh's followers became known as sannyasins, derived from the Sanskrit sannyasi, meaning to abandon. When they surrendered themselves to Rajneesh, they abandoned their old selves, including their names, and instead took new names often given to them by Rajneesh himself. In Bombay, we begin to see two key elements of Rajneesh's philosophy start to merge. The first element is Rajneesh's great disdain for institutionalized authority and rules of society, which he often rebelled against. The second element was Rajneesh's desire to build a Buddha field, or promised land, where his new man could live peacefully. His devotees believed that Rajneesh alone was capable of delivering on this promise of salvation for all humankind. Weber's final qualification that defines charismatic is the idea of a revolutionary force meant to, quote, result in a radical alteration of the central system of attitudes toward the world, end quote. Rajneesh's Buddha field evoked these notions and promised an entirely new world and way of life that offered enlightenment and salvation as never experienced before. Over the course of two decades, Rajneesh established himself as a being of higher power and recruited those who worshipped and validated this power. He built a community based on disrupting and freeing his followers from the restrictions and obligations of society. The lure of these benefits secured their absolute devotion and finally brought forth the idea that he could offer them a promised land. The desire to create this Buddha field helped give his community a reward to work towards, and in the coming years, the drive to establish such a world and fulfill his promise led Rajneesh to expand beyond Bombay. The building an oasis promised land comes with its challenges. Rajneesh's attempt to build an enlightened community was dogged by scandal and violence until his opponents managed to drive him out of India entirely. Our story will continue in a moment, after a brief message. And now, back to our story. By 1969, devotees flocked to Bombay to take sanyas with the spiritual guru Rajneesh. And soon he was swarmed by followers everywhere he went. Quote, Now he was no more a private person, but a man of public interest. He was talked about as a saint, a holy man, a guru wrote his devotee Ma Anand Sheila. Born Ambalal Patel Sheila, this devotee would become one of the most important players in the story of the Rajneesh movement. Born in Baroda, India in 1949, Sheila was raised in Gujarat in a middle-class family with six siblings. Scholars and sociologists often describe her childhood as privileged, and Sheila writes very fondly of her parents in her memoir, 
don't kill him. She describes a very loving and open household, saying, quote, I am lucky. My father was an intellectual with a warm heart, and my mother was just pure heart. They loved each other, and I loved them both, end quote. As a young girl, Rajneesh often visited her hometown of Gujarat on his lecture tours, and her father invited him into their home. Sheila said her father wanted his children to have a broad education. She said, quote, He wanted us to have choices and to be capable of finding our own values. Therefore, he insisted on an all-inclusive education, a part of which was meeting leaders and thinkers from all walks of life. My father wanted to give us a wealth of knowledge that could guide us throughout life, end quote. Sheila's described meeting Rajneesh at a very young age on one of his visits. She did not understand very much of what he said, but she believed it to be a profoundly life-changing meeting. At the age of 17, around 1967, she moved to the United States to study fine arts at Montclair College in New Jersey. While she was there, she married a wealthy student named Mark Silverman. Sheila wrote about falling in love with Mark in her memoir. He had been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of 18, and now at 21, he was reticent to marry, as his doctors told him he had only two years to live. But Sheila was young, just 18, and wanted to be with Mark anyway. Quote, We decided to defy logic and spend what little time we had joyfully. We wanted to feel love and not give up on life, even if it was limited. End quote. So the couple married around 1968, despite Mark's terminal illness. In 1972, when Sheila was 22, she was offered an art apprenticeship in northern India and was waiting for Mark to finish his final exams before they moved there together. The plan was interrupted when she received word that her mother was having eye surgery and she needed to travel to be with her. Sheila returned to her hometown to be with her mother with the plan that Mark would follow once he completed his courses. She visited her mother in the hospital and then traveled with her father to visit with a cousin in Bombay, now currently the city of Mumbai. This chance trip to Mumbai in 1972 changed Sheila's whole life. Rajneesh lived very near to where Sheila and her father were staying. The pair decided to pay the spiritual teacher a visit. Normally, Rajneesh did not take unscheduled visitors, but for some reason on that day, Sheila and her father were welcomed with open arms. Rajneesh's secretary, Ma Yoga Lakshmi, dressed in the orange garb of the sannyasins, let them in and led them to Rajneesh. Rajneesh held her to his chest, and she, quote, looked at him with a completely dissolved heart, end quote. First meetings with Rajneesh were often transcendent experiences to his devotees. This is a common occurrence with cult leaders, and we want to bring in the research of another cult expert, Robert Lifton, to understand what's going on here. As we've mentioned on this podcast before, many cult leaders establish control over their followers with the tactic known as mystical manipulation, where ordinary events are twisted to seem supernatural. According to the idea of mystical manipulation, coincidences are deemed symbolic. Mystical manipulation made this first meeting feel like fate. 
Sheila was greeted by a man who she already believed to be enlightened. The fact that Rajneesh made an allegedly spontaneous exception to his normal rules in order to meet Sheila made this visit feel special and very significant. Sheila, just 20 years old, spoke to Rajneesh about her husband's impending death and the anxiety it caused them both. Rajneesh comforted her, where many others in her life avoided the topic as uncomfortable. Rajneesh told Sheila that she and her husband were lucky for the constant reminder of death and that they should embrace it as natural and exciting. He, quote, advised we see death as the culmination of life and not as the undesirable end, end quote. This perspective inspired Sheila, and she couldn't wait to share it with Mark. When he finally arrived in India after finishing his exams, she took him to meet Rajneesh right away. Though Mark was impressed by Rajneesh's intellect, his spiritual teachings didn't quite have the same impact as they did on Sheila, at least not initially. Rajneesh invited them to one of his meditation camps, and Sheila was entranced. She was not interested in anything other than the spiritual teacher. Quote, For me, only Rajneesh existed. End quote. Sheila took sanyas while at the meditation camp, receiving the name Ma Anand Sheila from Rajneesh. Ma was the prefix Rajneesh gave to all women who followed him, as it meant mother and represented the potential in all of them for motherhood. Anand meant joy. And Sheila, already part of her given name, meant one with a strong character. And so Ma Anand Sheila became a sannyasin, a disciple and follower of the teachings of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. She wrote, quote, It is a feeling. I have left everything to my master. When he says, wear orange, then I will wear orange. When he says, walk naked in the street, then I will walk naked in the street. I know no other reason for what I do. To find out why I do what I do, you must ask my master, because he has become my absolute guide. End quote. Mark, who was 23 at the time, did not join as readily as Sheila did. But two days later, he took Sanya's too. Sheila wrote, quote, I am not sure if I made him do it or whether it was because of the impact of Rajneesh's lecture. Everything he said touched Mark. He became ready, end quote. Once the married couple had surrendered themselves to Rajneesh as devotees, he began to test their faith in him, pushing the boundaries of how far they would go to prove their devotion. According to Sheila, Rajneesh sent them to Palhalgam, Kashmir, in the middle of the winter, to meditate for three weeks. Palhalgam was famous for its bitter cold winters, but they accepted this mission and spent three weeks in the mountains of Palhalgam without heat and little food. Sheila wrote, We came back feeling superb. We had passed his litmus test with flying colors. This litmus test illustrates another one of Lifton's thought reform methods, the self-sanctification through purity. Individuals are asked to complete unattainable or very difficult tasks to prove themselves and their devotion with the potential of reward or gaining an elevated status in the group. Next, Rajneesh asked that they fly back to America and tie up the lives they had been living there. Sheila didn't expand on what Rajneesh meant by this, but it put them at odds with each of their families, especially Mark, whose family did not support their son's choice. Sheila wrote of Mark's father, quote, 
he would have preferred a criminal son to a son walking around in an orange sarong. This is an example of another of Lifton's thought control techniques, milieu reform, where communication with the outside world is limited or cut off completely. This creates a dependency on the cult leader and their ideology. Sheila's family was a little bit more understanding and supportive of their daughter's new religion, but they still worried that she was throwing away her future and a promising art career. Nevertheless, Sheila and Mark could not be dissuaded. In Bombay, as directed by Rajneesh, Sheila and Mark lived in a dormitory-style commune with three other devotees. This experiment, Sheila believed, was another test of their commitment, one that Sheila found very hard to stomach. Sheila wrote, quote, It was a painful and unpleasant time for Mark and me. Fortunately, this experimental commune disbanded as quickly as it started, end quote. To Sheila's great relief, Rajneesh grew tired of the experiment, and she could go back to sharing a bedroom with just her husband. But there were bigger changes coming for Sheila, for Rajneesh, and for the sannyasins. In 1974, Rajneesh grew tired of Bombay altogether. His asthma was worsening, and he developed various allergies, which took a toll on his physical well-being. So he looked to find a larger piece of land for his teachings. With the help of his secretary, Lakshmi, he purchased a bit of land outside of Bombay in Pune for an ashram, or spiritual monastery, that became the headquarters for all of his operations until 1980. This ashram was incorporated as a non-profit charity called the Rajneesh Foundation in the mid-1970s. Western followers flocked to this ashram in Pune for short stays to take part in the traditional Hindu relationship of Guru Chela, or teacher-pupil, before returning home to practice his teachings and spread the word of Rajneesh's path to enlightenment. The Pune ashram was run on donations from the devotees. Power was typically tied to a sannyasin wealth on the ashram. Sheila wrote, quote, some people were more willing to donate money for Rajneesh's personal needs than for the organization. Through donation, they wished to come closer to him, end quote. Rajneesh created a power dynamic between the devotees on the ashram, which favored the wealthy. According to Sheila, quote, Rajneesh would often praise a sannyasin publicly, whom he thought of as financially resourceful, end quote. Rajneesh essentially turned the ashram at Pune into a profitable operation and accepted extravagant gifts from his devotees. He had a soft spot for fancy cars, particularly the Rolls-Royce, a car widely associated with the indulgent one-upsmanship of the Maharajas of India at the turn of the century. Rajneesh took his very first Rolls-Royce out for a spin while living at the ashram in Pune. Sheila describes the criticism that Rajneesh came under for such extravagances. Quote, True spiritual leaders are not expected to lead a luxurious life. Spirituality in popular consciousness means material poverty. His lifestyle drove many traditional religious people crazy. End quote. Between the years of 1974 and 1980, the ashram in Pune rapidly expanded, with as many as 6,000 sannyasins living on and around the commune, attending therapy sessions, lectures, and meditation workshops. Some of these workshops were called encounter groups. 
Encounter groups were intensive group therapy sessions that encouraged sexual exploration as a means of pushing sannyasins out of their psychological and spiritual comfort zones. Sheila wrote about how she eventually realized that Rajneesh was exploiting his devotees during this time. He began charging fees for participation in group therapies, meditation sessions, and access to the ashram. Of this change in the financial structure in Pune, Sheila wrote, quote, Everyone was so crazy for enlightenment and so zealously anxious to be without ego and to be meditative that they could do anything for it. The sannyasins emptied their pockets and proved their devotion by expensive gifts. This exploitation was dirty, ugly, and repulsive, end quote. Rajneesh started to feel unwanted pressure from some of his wealthier donors who wanted preferential treatment for their large donations. But according to Sheila, he wanted everyone to know that he was in ultimate control. With the assertion of his ultimate control, things on the commune started to become more authoritarian. Rajneesh kept creating stricter rules, and he became more selective about who was allowed to attend the lectures. Growing health concerns plagued the guru, now in his mid-40s. Sheila wrote that she worried over and felt responsible for Rajneesh's well-being. He developed diabetes and back pain that Sheila believed was brought on by his asthmatic coughing fits, and his many allergies got worse. He began to employ a sniff test to make sure that those who wanted to join his lecture audience were not wearing perfumes or smelled of smoke and other odors that might be offensive to him or that might trigger his allergies. This was a departure from the early days where any and everyone was not only welcome, but encouraged to join his meditation groups and lectures and surrender themselves to his teachings. He began to assert his power and control more aggressively now. Sheila wrote of this change saying, quote, he let everyone know clearly who the master was, end quote. He was very aware of his inconsistencies and once said, quote, Consistency is impossible for me. I live in the moment, and whatsoever I am saying right now is true only for this moment. I have no references with my past, and I don't think of the future at all." End quote. He might not have been as carefree about the future as he claimed to be, as he endowed the women of the ashram with the authority to take control of the operations at the ashram to keep it running smoothly. Susan Palmer also studied the power dynamics of Rajneesh and his followers and wrote about this central core group of women in high-level positions of power at the commune in Pune. These women became informally known as power ladies. Ranging from personal secretary to personal nurse, these women cared for Rajneesh. They also managed the day-to-day -day operations and were involved in the high-level decision-making at the ashram. They were made to feel incredibly empowered and very much in control. This was never truly the case, though. Rajneesh often encouraged competition and infighting amongst these women, which left them all feeling vulnerable and insecure about their positions in the group. The power was real, but it was fleeting. Sheila wrote, quote, Rajneesh had set it up to let conflicts arise. Conflicts were considered a good tool to go deeper inside. According to him, conflicts should become visible and tangible and not be suppressed or pushed under the surface. Only thus can they serve inner growth." End quote. 
Rajneesh wrote that he preferred to work with women because they were less aggressive than men and more receptive and open to his energy. Receptivity was a key element of reaching enlightenment and was marked by an openness only Rajneesh could define according to his teachings. Therefore, it was a great compliment and sign of merit if the guru deemed you more receptive than others. Not everyone agreed with this reasoning for why Rajneesh targeted well-educated, independent women. The Argonian argued that Rajneesh felt women were more obedient followers of his rules and teachings, and thus were not a threat to his absolutism as the leader. Rajneesh's own comments about Ma Yoga Lakshmi, the power lady who served as one of his early personal secretaries, illustrates the ways in which he empowered these women in one breath and discredited them in the next. Of his secretary, Lakshmi, he said, quote, Always remember that Lakshmi never does anything on her own. She's the perfect vehicle, and that's why she is chosen for this work. Whatever is said, she does. End quote. You can hear in this comment the two conflicting ideas that help Rajneesh maintain control over his devotees. Lakshmi is a perfect vehicle to do his bidding, perfect based on the guidelines that only Rajneesh knows and can determine. But she is not so powerful that she acts on her own ideas. Everything she does is guided by Rajneesh. Putting someone like Lakshmi in a power position made this dichotomy attractive. Devotees hoped that they too would become perfect enough to be chosen to carry out Rajneesh's orders. The encouraged competition among his power ladies led to their constant battle to unseat one another from their respective roles. According to the Oregonian, an ex-Sanyasin told them that Sheila herself, quote, edged out another woman for the number two spot on Rajneesh's office staff, end quote. So despite putting these women in what looked like high positions of leadership at the ashram, Rajneesh was merely creating the illusion of power. He likewise prevented a truly stable, established leadership structure from forming. Due to this lack of rules and regulations, things at the ashram were getting out of control. In 1979, a German sannyasin named Wolfgang de Bravelny made a film called Ashram which featured a 15-minute sequence of violence that broke out at one of the nude encounter group therapy sessions. The film made it all the way to the United States, with the LA Times reporting that the path to enlightenment involved some, quote, broken bones and black eyes along the way. It is important to note that communities under a charismatic authority are usually extremely unstable. This is because charismatic leaders reject the rules and regulations that come with more organized forms of government. 30-year-old Sheila was going through her own personal upheaval during this time as well. In 1980, her husband Mark lost his battle to cancer at the age of 33. Of this trying time, Sheila wrote, quote, his last years were tough. When he died, Rajneesh's teachings gave me that strength to accept the loss. After Mark's death, I devoted myself to Rajneesh and the ashram completely and even more dedicatedly." End quote. In order to cope with her pain, Sheila searched for stability and support at the ashram. That stability would not be so easy to come by, however, as the violence escalated among the commune. Additional incidents of mental breakdowns, broken bones, and rape occurred on the property. 
Rajneesh's relationship with the surrounding community grew hostile as overcrowding at his compound became a problem. It was clear that Rajneesh needed to do something to keep his community united. Though the exact timing of this is uncertain, another pivotal change took place in 1981, according to Wynne McCormick's timeline of the Rajneesh movement. Rajneesh took a vow of silence, withdrawing from public speaking engagements. He spoke only to his top aides. His followers called this the ultimate phase of his work, which was meant to deepen his communion with his devotees. Sheila claimed that she was dismayed by the news of Rajneesh's vow. She wrote, quote, I couldn't believe my ears. It meant the end of the man I loved. I couldn't understand why he was doing it, end quote. Perhaps Sheila was worried about the potential collapse of their movement in the wake of Rajneesh's vow and the violence plaguing their community. Or perhaps she was excited by the power vacuum that Rajneesh's vow of silence created. After all, this gave her the opportunity she needed to rise to power. Dealing with new and mounting pressures, acting as spokesperson for the guru, escalating financial trouble, violence, and unrest in the ashram, Sheila needed to act quickly and with a strong, steady hand to ensure the movement's future. She became a fierce authoritarian whose antagonistic approach to ruling would eventually lead the sannyasins down a violent path. Next week, we'll take a closer look at how Sheila founded, organized, and gained control over a new commune in Oregon called Rancho Rajneesh. We will see how her bid to gain political power in the neighboring town's local government led to the first biochemical terrorism attack on U.S. soil that poisoned over 750 citizens. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Tuesday as we continue to investigate Rajneesh Puram. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Lisa Fry and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Thanks for listening to Cults. Here's a reminder that you can find hundreds of shockingly true stories, episodes you won't hear anywhere else, by following Cults, free and only on Spotify.